Chapter twenty one of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter twenty one. Coralie's Private Journal. It is three days since I sent my father the latest chapter in my critical and exhaustive study of Lady Penrith, and I really thought I had done my work so carefully and so well as to deserve praise even from him. But not one word of acknowledgment have I yet received, and if I had not taken the trouble to register my little packet I might think that my manuscript had gone astray. I have guarded against even this contingency, for in the copy I made for paternal perusal, I used ciphers instead of proper names, enclosing a key to those ciphers in a separate letter. My original journal I keep for my own amusement in days to come, when my life at Calander Castle will be but a memory, a memory to prose about, perhaps, to girls who will be as tired of me as I am of Lady Selina and her rambling stories of her innumerable nieces and their splendors. My sisters all married well, and I might have married as well as any of them, she explained to me yesterday. The newspaper people used to write about us as the beautiful Mountfords, and at my age I needn't mind saying that, though I was the eldest, I was by no means the plainest of the sisters. Indeed, she needn't mind, for there isn't a trace of that youthful beauty left in her wrinkled old countenance, so she might as well prate of the conquests of the Lady Selina of those days without being accused of egotism. I was home an hour earlier than Lady Penrith the day before yesterday, and I had the felicity of pouring out Lady Selina's tea, a burden which was somewhat relieved by the Reverend John's appearance in the drawing-room. He had left the shooters on the moors. "'You are tired of killing innocent birds, I suppose,' said I. "'No more tired than you are of eating them, Miss Urquhart,' he answered. "'This was rather crushing, as he had seen me demolish the best part of a cold grouse at breakfast that morning. "'Oh, I am strictly utilitarian there,' answered I. "'When once they are killed,' they may as well be eaten. He looked around the room with a disappointed air, I thought. What has become of Lady Penrith? Not another headache, I hope, he said. There was not nearly so much of talk of headache when I was a young woman, said Lady Selina. I explained that my aunt had gone for a long, solitary drive, and then, with my own hands, I carried that starched parson his cup of tea after I had put a sweet little vernis table by the side of his chair. 
I pampered him with cream and muffin, until the primly pious creature looked up with a chilly smile and said, "'If I were a Mussulman, this will be my idea of paradise, Miss Urquhart. A low, easy chair, and a nice young lady to give me my tea.' "'Yes, and when you missed Lady Penrith just now, you looked round the room as though it were a blank,' said I. Would you believe it, my dear Letts? The creature blushed to the roots of his nice wavy hair, like an iceberg crimsoned by the setting sun. Lady Penrith's absence must leave a blank wherever people are accustomed to see her, he answered as the blush faded, leaving him in his usual iced cucumber condition. Trying to please a man of his temperament is like punishment labor, the hardest form of human toil, with the conviction that it is all wasted effort. Yes, I think I would sooner turn the crank than to try to fascinate the reverend and honorable John. Yet plain women have achieved even greater successes. I know of plain peeresses who had no money-bags counterbalance blunt features and dull complexions plain millionairesses who have married millionaires on the strength of being plump and comfortable-looking let me remember this and go on trying after all i have nothing else to do in this fortress on the marches except to watch lady penrith and it is in a woman's nature especially a plain woman's, to try hard for any great catch in the matrimonial line that circumstances may throw in her way. Circumstances have thrown Mr. Coverdale in my way, and I should be a fool not to do my uttermost to improve the occasion. No more rowdy talk in the billiard-room. I feel angry with my father for having told me so much of the club smoke-room slang. He never told me anything really bad, but just those touch-and-go stories that give zest to conversation among men and women of the world, yet which are of a kind to disgust this high church Puritan. I shall devote tomorrow morning to fishing out biographies of the saints in the encyclopedia and in the evening i'll read newman's apologia or montan labert's monks of the west the mystery thickens to you only dear lads could i confide my adventures of this afternoon it has been a day of surprises the first occurred at the breakfast-table, when Lady Penrith, who was generally reticence itself about her own doings, thoughts, and fancies, and who rarely initiates any conversations with my uncle, began to talk to him about her drive of yesterday. "'I took the Icelanders further than usual,' she said. "'But they did their work capitally.' They are dear little things, and I am very much obliged to you, Penrith. The Iceland ponies are a recent present from my lord to my lady, 
a kind of set-off against the thousand or so of her money which he paid for the hire of a grouse moor in Argyllshire. "'I'm glad you like them,' answered that human iceberg. "'Curious to find two such men as my Uncle Penrith and Mr. Coverdale under one roof, yet they wear their ice with a difference. I suspect the parson of hidden fires, but I believe his lordship frozen to the core. I went as far as St. Jude's. I wanted very much to see the vicar's wife. I have heard a saddening account of their poverty. However, there was no one at home, so I had my drive for nothing. Her manner of watching her husband's face as she said this convinced me that there was some serious motive for her speech, and that she was trying the effect of a certain illusions upon his lordship. "'It was a pity you gave yourself the trouble,' he answered care carelessly. "'The vicar of St. Jude's is no poorer than a hundred other parish priests scattered about the country in villages as solitary and wretched.' The living is yours, I am told. Oh, well, the living is mine, but I can't make it any better than it is. Carpew was very glad to get it when my father gave it to him. He hoped it was only the beginning, I suppose. He could hardly think it would be the end. I believe it's his own fault that he's still at St. Jude's. He's a lazy vagabond who would rather vegetate than work. He shirked all trouble, I remember, when he was my tutor, though he came to us with a great reputation for mathematics. He was always glad to do as little work as possible, and Hubert and I would have preferred doing none, so we were good friends. He and Hubert were tremendous chums, indeed, for Hubert always liked low company. Low company? "'A famous mathematician!' exclaimed my aunt. "'Mathematics won't turn a cad into a gentleman,' answered my uncle, lifting his eyebrows. "'His people were small shopkeepers, primitive Methodists, or something of that kind. "'The poor wretch has struggled out of the mire, and now he suppose he has slipped back into it. "'I have not seen him, to my knowledge, for the last ten years.' "'Do you know anything about his wife?' asked my aunt, still watchful of her husband's face. "'I remember hearing that she was the daughter of an adjutant of a line regiment, and by way of being immensely genteel. Poor creature! Her gentility must have rusted and mildewed in twenty years at St. Jude's. "'Have the Carpews been twenty years at St. Jude's? More than twenty. My father gave him the living before Cora was born. I rem remember my brother begging the birth for him, and it was before Hubert's marriage. Now this was one of the longest conversations I ever heard between this lady and gentleman. They are always civil to each other before company, courteous, courteous even. But it is the rarest thing for them to talk to each other as though they had an interest in common. After luncheon, Lady Penrith again informed me that she was going for a long drive alone, and suggested the barouche for her aunt and me. 
I was spared that infliction, as Lady Selina had acquired a fine cold in the head, one of those colds which inflict keener suffering upon the spectator than upon the patient, and which I believe to be distinctly infectious, whatever doctors may say to the contrary. As she insisted on nursing this loathsome complaint by the drawing-room fire, I deserted that room for the afternoon, and started for a long walk, first with the idea of getting a glimpse of her ladyship's Icelanders going or returning, and secondly because the fresh air and exercise will help me maintain at least a clear complexion, if not a beautiful one. Now, my good let's, comes surprise number two. I walked across the moor to Ardliston, and in the long, straggling street of that bleak, wind-blown village, whom should I meet but my very own father? Yes, my father, who has always expressed his hatred of this part of the world, and has congratulated himself that, while his brother was born at the castle, Barclay Square had been thought good enough for him, the younger son, so that he was not called upon to feel any affection for Cumberland as his native soil. There, in front of the Higginson's arms, whom should I see but that very father of mine? He did not seem particularly pleased to see me. Indeed, I may say that his manner was strictly paternal. "'Come inside, Coralie. I want a few minutes' talk with you,' said he after his first curt greeting, and then he led the way into the inn, hotel forsooth on the sideboard, and into a wretched parlour where the decorations comprised a magenta table-cover that hurt my eyes after the cool, harmonious tints of autumnal sea and sky, a pair of cut-glass lusters on the mantelpiece, and a fearful and wonderful composition in gaudily colored shells under a glass shade on the sideboard. "'There isn't a chair in the room fit to sit in,' said my father, with a vindictive shove to an American cloth-covered monstrosity, into which he flung himself, leaving me to perch where I liked. "'Are you here for long?' I asked. "'No, possibly not more than twenty-four hours.' "'Oh, you received my manuscript, I suppose?' "'Oh, yes, that came to hand. "'You have the pen of a ready writer, Cora. "'You ought to do something in literature by and by.' "'And my manuscript brought you here, I suppose?' said I, ignoring the paternal praise. "'He did not condescend to answer. "'Lady Penrith drew, drove through the place half an hour ago. "'Do you know where she is going?' he asked presently. "'I have a shrewd suspicion,' said I, and then I told him of the conversation at the breakfast-table, watching his face, meanwhile, as keenly as Miss Lady Penrith watched her husband. Whether my father is less master of himself than the Earl, or whether he had more reason to be concerned, I know not, but his countenance betrayed intense anxiety.' He started out of the odious, sticky chair, and walked to the window, where he stood looking into the street for some minutes. 
curious this sudden interest in the carpews said he after a long silence and with a very poor attempt at careless speech i should have given my father credit for being a better actor but i fear that pegs and late hours are beginning to tell upon him he has aged considerably since i left school and looks older than my uncle penrith yes it is rather curious ain't it i answered i believe it springs from her insane anxiety to trace that wretched lunatic who accosted her on the moor can you conceive any reason for this interest in a half-witted peasant yes the strongest of all reasons he answered bitterly she is a woman and women love to make molehills into mountains now listen to me cora i am here on business business of importance you can understand that as you know i loathe the place and am ill friends with my brother not a word about your having seen me here to any living creature gentle or simple i shall vanish as suddenly as i came last night's mail brought me to-night's mail may probably take me back to london go on with your journal it is capital practice for your pen you are cultivating exactly that pert pessimism which readers like nowadays the task is so good for you as a literary exercise that i won't even thank you for doing it indeed you ought to thank me for putting it upon you to do bravo cried i that's an easy way of escaping the sense of obligation uh, go on with your journal keep a strict watch upon her ladyship don't be afraid of being diffuse note the smallest details and send me your report every day or twice a day if there's something interesting to report there can be no further doubt as to my position said i this is secret police work it is work that may save your father from a great danger and you from the risk of the disadvantages that his disgrace must entail upon you answered my father sternly i won't trifle you any longer coralie this is a matter of life and death life or death to reputation i mean he was almost livid and his lower lip worked in an agitated way when he left off speaking there must be something very serious behind this anxiety i saw him wipe the beads of perspiration from his forehead though the room with its wretched turf fire felt damp and chilly there must be something very serious in my father's past history something which very nearly touches lady penrith i am devoured with curiosity yet dare not ask questions of any one about the past lest i excite suspicion and injure him he is my father after all and as he tells me any discredit to him must reflect on discredit 
discredit to me. I must be loyal to him, however disloyal I may be to my uncle's wife. And now, Cora, it's goodbye to you, said my father, after looking out the window again for some minutes. You'd better get on with your walk. There's not a mortal in sight, and you can slip out of the house without anyone knowing that you've been here. The parlor was close to the inn door. He had just touched my forehead with his hot, dry lips and put me across the threshold. One o'clock. This habit of diary writing grows upon me, and I am shortening my hours of rest. But what is the use of beauty sleep when one has no beauty? End of chapter 21